Hello, welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast with me, Joe Wisby. My guest today is Mark Lewison. If you're listening to this podcast, you'll know exactly who Mark is. We talk about his background, his books, and the journey that made him into the writer that he is today. Mark Lewison, hello, welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Very well, Joe. How are you doing? I'm incredibly well. I'm I'm incredibly excited to talk to you today. And we're going to have a little bit of an all-our-yesterdays trip because we are, uh, we're around the time, the anniversary of your first pieces of research appearing in the Beatles Monthly magazine. Tell us about how you being a Beatles fan came around and you being like a research fan came around. How did those two things come about and mesh themselves together? The Beatles fan thing came, as it did for all of us, with just hearing the music, seeing the pictures, hearing, learning of their personalities. You know, any any immersion in the Beatles, uh, if you've got a receptive heart and mind, is going to engage you. And I was very engaged by the Beatles from 1963 when I was five. I don't recall ever thinking about pop music before the Beatles, and perhaps that was part of the reason why they just sounded so incredibly fresh and exciting to me. But in reality, they sounded fresh and exciting to everybody, even if you did know what had preceded them, because they actually had a new sound and it was a sound that human beings had never made before and therefore other human beings had never heard before and very engaging. So I was a fan from then, as were so many people. And uh, as for the research... I've just been born with a gift to research. It's as simple as that. I can't, you can't learn it. I think it's one of those things that if, if something comes naturally to you, whatever that thing might be, if you try and force it without having the innate ability, it probably won't come that easily. But as a child, I, I just knew how to look things up. And my mother was a great reader and she would go to our local public library, which was in Kenton in Middlesex. And she, you could borrow six books every three weeks. And, and she would get six books, typically fiction, biographies or history. And she would read them in the space of three weeks. Uh, and I would often go with her to the library. And I would always go to the reference section and look things up, look up encyclopedias, look up dictionaries, look up trade directories. I would look up where my father's, where my father worked in uh, the stock exchange directory. And he didn't work for the stock exchange, but the company he worked for was listed. And uh, I would go home and say to my father, um, do you know the director, Mr. Whatever his name is? How do you know his name? And I said, I saw it in a book of directors of companies. I was about five or six, probably deserved a slap around the face for that. But <laughs> I mean, I remember once, I have quite a vivid memory actually going into that library, which is a beautiful art deco library still there. And I go there occasionally now for old time's sake. I was a child and the librarian said to me, the children's section's over there. And I bristled because I didn't want the children's section. I didn't read books as such. Uh, I just check things. I look things up in books of information and statistics and so on. Mm. And so eventually, about when I was about 18, 19, I married the two things together of researching the Beatles. Uh, I read the few books that there were about them. I consumed those books and I just wanted to do some research of my own for for no particular end at that point, but I just had to do it. Was there a moment in that early part of your life when you realised that you were sort of a different type of Beatles fan? You, as you say, everyone 
almost everyone in that time loved the Beatles. Did you get a sense at that point in your life that, oh, hang on a minute, I'm I'm more interested than the person over the road or whatever? I don't remember thinking that, but I mean, because we humans are a varied lot. I mean, when I met other Beatles fans for the first time, really at early conventions, I, I went to all the early conventions in, in England from 76 when they began until deep into the 80s. Um, then obviously you meet people who come at the Beatles from different angles and other people have their own specialities. And there probably weren't many people who was who were doing what I was doing, which was trying to find things out that weren't already in books. And there was a big influence on me was a book called All Together Now by uh, Harry Castleman and Wally Podrasik, two American students, I think they were, or they'd been through college together and met, and they had this yen for research as well. And they had prepared and produced the first major discographical work into the Beatles, which educated me enormously, alerted me to what was on Apple and Dark Horse and the records that they played on but weren't theirs, you know, guest appearances, or records that they had produced, or, or just the, simply the release pattern and the chart positions in different countries, particularly Britain and America. I didn't know any of that, really. And it was clearly an authoritative book. So um, and because I was a, a, a library user, and I was working at the BBC by that point, the BBC had a really strong internal uh, lending library there to serve producers and researchers on programmes to aid the information in TV and radio programmes. I got the book out on loan and I just kept extending it and basically kept it. <laughs> Did eventually return it and bought my own copy, I'm glad to say, to be honest. That book was a great education to me. And fortunately for me, that book was owned also, or at least borrowed perhaps by whoever set the questions in the quiz in the very first London Beatles convention in December 76, which was generally a very disappointingly attended affair. And because of that, because I knew the book that the questions had been set from, I knew most of the answers and and I got through to the final of that quiz and won it. And that was really the kind of the start of things. And I was 18 at that point. So you mentioned working for the BBC there. Were you at that point keen to use this passion for, for research to build a career around? Or what kind of role were you doing there? Um, I was in admin. I was a clerk in mostly accounts departments. I mean, it was a beautiful thing because I started, I didn't go to university. I didn't take any A-levels. I just went straight from school at 16 and joined the BBC. And in the very first department I was in, um, which was called Program Accounts, we in that department, there were loads of us, 40 people perhaps, we had to process the contracts and the payments for everybody who appeared on the radio who was going to be paid for it, which was pretty much everybody. We were radio and downstairs was television. Um, and I was on the Radio 4 desk, just put there. I hadn't applied for that position, but I was assigned that job. And at the end of our office was a filing system. And in the filing system were contracts like, for example, George Harrison had a file and his signature was on papers in my first office, <laughs> which was a complete fluke. You know, I hadn't chosen any of that to happen, but it happened. And then I discovered from my colleagues, an important part of our job was to look at artists' registry files. It's um, a filing system within the BBC where an artist's contracts are all placed onto one file. So you can ultimately, over time, see the pattern of an artist's broadcasting career. And, um, and we had 
the right to request these by phone and they would arrive in the internal post. And I got the Beatles file out and it had contracts for all their early radio appearances. You know, I hadn't heard of the programs, let alone heard the tapes. And so that again was, I was in the right place at the right time, but I had the right kind of inquiring mind to think there's something here I can use. Mm. And I did, I did. So we mentioned Beatles Monthly before we look at a little bit about how you kind of became involved in it, was that uh, was that magazine a big part of your Beatles experience in the 60s? Would that drop through your door every month? Um, it didn't drop through my door, but initially um, I was very young. I mean, I was born in 1958. So when the monthly began, I was five and uh, I didn't get them often, but um, I would go with my mother to a shopping a town in North London called Burnt Oak near the top of the Northern Line. And uh, there was opposite the station was a little secondhand magazine shop of the kind that you used to see a lot of, but you don't get any more. And um, the man in that who was always whistling, um, nice old character, knew that this little boy was interested in anything he got on the Beatles. Um, so whenever he got anything, he would put it aside. And if I went in there with my mum, he'd say, oh, I've got these. And my mum would be obliged to fork out however many shillings it was for these basically some of those early one shots and a few issues of the monthly. Mm. So I knew about the monthly, but I didn't get it regularly until issue 54, January, 1968. That was when I upped my level as a Beatles fan. I had Sergeant Pepper by then. I'd seen Magical Mystery Tour, although I don't recall much about it and just had to get it every month. And I would cycle around to the news agents and buy it on the first of every month for two shillings. Was it the your success at the quiz then that led you to, did that give you a bit of confidence to start to write and research in a bit more of a focused way? Well, Beatles Monthly had packed up at the end of 1969 mm. um, and, and that was it. And there was a, a something of a market in secondhand issues, but they were fairly freely available. Until 1976, when EMI had a campaign to reissue all the original Beatles singles in picture sleeves or coloured sleeves, um, including a couple, or at least yesterday, that hadn't been out before. And they all made the charts. I think yesterday made top 10, number four is in my head. I can't recall. Mm. And as a result of that, the publisher of Beatles Monthly, Sean O'Mahony, who went under the pen name Johnny Dean, it, there was never a Johnny Dean, it was really Sean O'Mahony, decided to reissue the magazine. And I, I remember going up to the office because I worked in London and I went to the office, which was in Parker Street off Kingsway near Covent Garden and got the first issue like before it was out. And then when I won this quiz, which was Christmas time in 76, I wrote him a letter saying, I've won this quiz. If I can be of any use to you, let me know. And uh, and I could because they used to receive letters from readers with particular questions um, about the Beatles, this or that, or you know, often it was discographical. And I had Wally and Harry's book to help me, mm. which not many other people had. Uh, and no one on the staff of the magazine knew, had that depth of knowledge about the Beatles. So he said to me, can you choose some letters that we will run each month and write the replies? And they will go in the magazine as Johnny Dean replies, but it was really me. And he paid me one pound a letter. So I was actually being paid for my Beatles knowledge for the first time. And then through 1977, when I was doing this, I said, can I write an article? And they said, about what? And I said, well, what about if I review everything that happens in their world in 1977 in the Beatles world? 
and it ran in the February 1978 issue, and that was my first piece by the byline. Mm. And um, I really couldn't write. I had the knowledge, I had the enthusiasm, but I didn't have any style. And uh, I had to learn it. And I learned style simply by doing it. Mm. Uh, and again, it's one of those things that I wouldn't quite say I had a, a natural ability to write because I didn't have it to begin with, but I very quickly got one, um, quicker than I might have expected to. So by then I was a writer and I've just been looking at it actually, February 1978. It, it's awful. <laughs> it's absolutely bloody awful. But I had my byline and I, I remember showing it to my colleagues in the office, you know, look, there's my name Yeah. in, in yeah. the Beatles Monthly, which was a great thrill because I'd been a childhood reader of it. A quick word on on Sean O'Mahony. What what kind of character was he? What relationship, if any, did he have with the the four Beatles? There's a, a few pictures of him kind of hanging out at a photo session and stuff. What kind of guy was Sean? First of all, as a businessman, he was quite innovative. Um, he had been working for um, Robert Stigwood and Albert Hand had this really strange magazine called Pop Weekly, and he had been on Pop Weekly. And then he launched himself as a separate publisher and done Beat Monthly, which eventually became Beat Instrumental. And Beat Monthly spun off into the Beatles Monthly, or Beatles Book, it was called. Mm. He was a very upright individual, um, quite conservative, both with a small C and a capital C, quite old-fashioned, quite a stickler, um, very much liked, I mean, he had to be called Mr. Omani by his uh, employees. He couldn't be called sean he was quite quick with a temper the beatles i often wonder what they thought of him i mean I, they accepted him i don't think they saw that much of him we've got pictures of when he turned up at sessions but i don't think it was that frequent i think he would have known not to go too often i think they tolerated him and it was probably an affable business relationship but they wouldn't have had him there if he wasn't publishing their magazine mm. Um, and the more way out the Beatles became from 66 onwards, say, the less he understood them. Uh, and then obviously with the, in the drugs era and then the nudity era of 1968 onwards, he really couldn't understand them at all anymore. And they began to distance themselves from his magazine. It was right that it came to an end in 69. When he revived it in 76, he did it without their permission, as far as I could tell. And there was always an assumption on the reader's part, certainly on my part, that they knew about it. And maybe they did because it was on the newsstands and, and hard to believe it wouldn't have come into their under their radar at some point. But in February 1979, when I was working at the BBC in Broadcasting House, I was on the third floor and on Radio One was broadcast from the first floor two floors below me. There was only one way in and out to the Radio One studio suite. And I knew that George Harrison was coming in to do a round table with um, Kid Jensen and Michael Jackson as well. <laughs> and so I wrote a letter to George asking for an interview on the headed paper of the magazine, stuck it inside the magazine, inside an envelope. And as George came along, the first time I ever met him, I handed it to him and he said, oh, what's that, a bomb? And I went, no, it's a magazine. You'll read, you'll open it and you'll find out. Michael Jackson walked past me as well. And uh, and then I went back to my office to listen to the broadcast, which was live. The next thing I hear is George Harrison has 
complained about the republication a bit. What's all this? I didn't know this was being published and got onto Neil Aspinall about it. And Neil hit Sean O'Mahony with a writ. And I had started that. I mean, after what was it? This was 79. So two and a half years, nearly three years of republication. It was rather amazing. He hadn't heard about it until then. But it does seem that I alerted him to it. And George was very unhappy. Obviously, I didn't get my interview. Instead, Sean O'Mahony got a writ. And it led to quite a contentious case. And I was lucky that Sean O'Mahony didn't get rid of me for that mm. because I think he knew that I had caused it. But maybe he knew it was going to happen at some point. As you say, you were there at the BBC and the, the Beatles and the BBC obviously had a huge association through a lot of the 60s and would go on to have, as time went by, you started to do some research with the Beatles and the BBC. Tell us a little bit about that. During 1979, when the Sunday Times newspaper, Times newspapers were on strike, journalists were on strike for about a year, I think. Philip Norman, who wrote for the Sunday Times, uh, had the idea to do a biography of the Beatles. And he must have got in touch with Sean O'Mahony, probably phoned Johnny Dean and got put through to Sean O'Mahony. And Sean O'Mahony must have mentioned me because Philip Norman got in touch with me and wanted to come and see me, uh, I think, to do a little piece on me in his book. In the end, the style of his book changed and there was no piece, although a couple of mentions, but no piece. Um, but I remember he came, I took the afternoon off work. He came, I was still living with my mum and dad, and he came around to my house in Pinner, um, which was quite handy for him later because when he wrote about Elton, he knew Pinner from having visited me. I remember taking him up to my bedroom where I had my my bootleg collection and, you know, my records and books and so on were all up in my room. And I think that, that what happened was I said to him, if there's anything I can do for you, let me know. And he said, can you find... No, I, no, I said uh, the date that Lennon met McCartney is, is inconsistently told in the few books that there are. They can't all be right and maybe none of them is right. So um, it would be nice if your book got the right date. And uh, he said, well, could you see if you can find it? And I said, yes, I'd be glad to. So that was kind of like a little research commission for me. I wasn't being paid for it, but I was very happy to do it. And it was an excuse, not that I needed one, but it was an excuse to go to a particular library I'd always wanted to go to. And you couldn't go in it till you were 21. And I was just 21. So I could go there and I found the date that John met Paul in the Liverpool Weekly News of 1957. And uh, is there anything else? Well, um, I think, can you find out if the Beatles were on the BBC radio show with the Northern Dance Orchestra in June 1962? And I said, sure. Well, that meant going through internal BBC records. And I worked at the BBC and being the kind of person I was, I'd familiarised myself with all the internal information resources within the BBC. And there were several. And I found the information. They had been on the radio with the Northern Dance Orchestra in June of 62, but actually that wasn't even their first broadcast. They'd done one with them in March as well. So he went away happy. Uh, and one more thing I did was the uh, the Johnny Gentle dates in 1960 when they'd been to Scotland. Where did they go and when was it? Again, different in, in, in various books. So having done those things for Philip, he was satisfied and that was that. And I just thought, what else can I find in the BBC? Because, you know, I've answered that question, but I went back to the registry file and there were all the Beatles BBC contracts with recording dates and broadcast dates and another facility in a BBC building called the Langham, now the Langham Hotel. 
had what we call PSBs, BBC called PSB, Program as Broadcast Documents. The entire accurate content of every radio and television program is logged and they're kept. They go right back to the beginning of the BBC. Uh, so I just, with all the list of dates and programs, just went to each daily log and noted all the songs that were played. And I began to assemble the Beatles BBC radio session catalogue. Now, there hadn't really been any real research into the Beatles since they broke up. In fact, there hadn't really been any real research into them full stop. Mm. It was relatively recent, actually, only years since since they had gone. And um, and I did all this work. I typed it up, which was a lot of typing on a real typewriter, and took it into Sean O'Mahony. And I said, would you publish this? And to his great credit, and I always thank him for this, he said, yes, he would. And he gave a special splash to it in the March 1980 issue and added extra pages just to incorporate it, which was really kind of him. It obviously cost to him. Mm. Uh, that was part one and April was part two um, to continue it because it was such a lot to it. And that was really, you know, the first proper, apart from what Harry and Wally did, which I, I you know, can never discount. But in, so they they had the discographical side, but I had this other side, which was what the Beatles had done. Mm. You know, we now know that on that date they were in the BBC studio recording. I got to find my baby, Clarabella, Carol. That's all right, Mama. You know all those kind of songs, and um, some of those some of those tracks were available on bootlegs, but you didn't really know where they had come from. In fact, a lot of that stuff was on Yellow Matter Custard, and it was I had the first bootleg, Beatles bootleg I'd ever bought. And they were meant to be Decca tracks, but they were turned out to be BBC radio recordings. Mm. So I did all that. And to my great pleasure, and I've got it right here, I had a letter, well, the magazine had a letter from Wally Padrasic in March 1980. Congratulations to Mark Lewison for his superb article on the Beatles BBC radio appearances. Mm. Um, so that was like getting a letter where well, they got the letter, but I was given it at the end. They ran it. And also I was given the original of it. It was like getting a letter from my hero because, you know, he was part of why I was doing all of this. And that, interestingly enough, there was a good friend of mine at the time called John Walker who said, um, well, it's the anniversary of the Beatles first BBC radio session. We now have the date, March the 7th, 82. The anniversary is coming up in uh, March Sorry, 62, and the anniversary is coming up in March 82, 20 years. I'll write a letter to Radio 1 and suggest a documentary or a, a celebration of some kind. And I said, oh, John, you know, they're not going to want to do that. The Beatles were so passe at this time. But what happened in between my catalogue being published and that anniversary was John Lennon got murdered. And John Lennon's murder changed everything because it made everybody much more Beatles conscious. It, there was a real market for the Beatles for many, many, many years after that. Still is. And John wrote a letter to um, Johnny Beerling, the controller Radio 1, and Johnny said, yeah, we'll look into that. And that led to the Beatles at the Beeb radio special in March 1982. And eventually it led to only six years later, but it seemed forever. I researched and co-wrote with Kevin Howlett a 14-part Radio 1 series called The Beeb's Lost Beatles Tapes, mm. um, which uh, was a really gratifying thing to work on and ended up winning an award. So, yeah, it was, it was, it, it's great how one thing has always led to the next. So were you involved in, because Kevin's book is, is that 82? Did you have an involvement in that as well? No, because Kevin, 
he did that alone. I think possibly with Jeff Griffin, because Kevin was only a young producer at the time and it was kind of an early big project for him to do. Um, but when in 88, he had the idea for a 14 half hours, uh, my I was working on the recording sessions book at the time. And, um, and my first book, the live book had come out and he said, you know, would I get involved in it with him? And there was a great pleasure to work for about about four months with Kevin sitting in his office at Radio One. I had left I'd left the BBC because I couldn't join the departments that I really wanted to. By this point, I was doing quite a lot of creative things and I hoped to become a join a program making department of some kind. But I was kind of pigeonholed by being a, an admin clerk and couldn't make the transition easily. So I'd left, but I ended up going back as a freelancer to do the things I'd always wanted to do, which was make programs. So you mentioned uh, your work for Philip Norman and for Shout there. You worked on some other books that Philip wrote and you worked on Ray Coleman's books. Tell us a little bit about what kind of work that was. Did you enjoy at that point helping out these these authors? Yes, very much. Um, because the early articles I'd written were, I knew in myself, not very well written. Oh, in 1979, uh, I persuaded Sean O'Mahony to let me do a monthly compendium of new of news because everything in Beatles Monthly was old. There was the original issue inside it that was 60s. The wraparound pages were uh, kind of nostalgia pieces by the likes of Tony Barrow and Bill Harry about way back when. And I felt that people would want to know what Wings are doing and what George is doing and what Ringo is doing and, and John as well at that point. But I, I never considered myself much of a writer. I was always more, I was always happier to research and the writing was a drag and probably came over that way as well. At least it did to me. So I, I felt myself available as a researcher. I'd done some research for Philip on Shout and then I had a very lucky break. I, I left the BBC and went to Music Week magazine. So that was my proper entree into the music industry. Um, and I really love working at Music Week, except for certain couple of things that were really awful about it. But generally, it was a very good job to have. And I compiled the annual Music Week directory, I think three or four times, which gave me a great grounding in the way the industry worked, which I've always found very useful in my writing. But eventually, the, the, the negative aspects of the job got to me so much that I quit. And uh, on the very last day I was there, not sure what I was going to be doing from this point on, leaving without a job to go to. The editor, Rodney Burbeck, got a phone call from a guy he had known for years, Ray Coleman. Rodney had been press officer at CBS and RCA before he joined Music Week. And he and Ray Coleman both came from Leicester, which is most unlikely, and started on local papers. So it's a, hi, Ray, what are you doing? Oh, I'm, uh, I've left Melody Maker because Ray was editor of Melody Maker forever. And I'm going to be writing a, a biography of John Lennon. And I've got the authorization of both Cynthia and Yoko to do it. Um, but I'm looking for a researcher. And Rodney said, there's a guy here who knows a lot about the Beatles and he's leaving today. Do you want to speak to him? So I spoke to Ray. And basically, as soon as I left full-time employment, Ray said, come and see me and gave me about a year's work as his researcher. I had the backbone of, of, of Ray's money to launch myself as a freelance. And that was March 83. And I've been self-employed ever since. What did you make of those, those two common books, the John books and the Brian book? Yeah, the Brian, the Brian book was my idea. Um, I said the Brian should be the subject of a really good biography. 
Whereas these days I would do that myself in those days, because I didn't believe I could write a biography. I just gave the idea to Ray. What did I think of them? That's a good question. I thought they were both quite dull. Well, both parts of the Lennon book and then the Brian book, I thought they were all dull. And I mean, no disrespect to Ray. I've, I was really fond of Ray and he was a mentor to me, undoubtedly. He opened many doors for me. And as I said, he gave me you know, enough work that I didn't have to worry about income for the first year or so as a freelance. And that's what every freelance needs when you get going. But as books, I did. I don't feel that he had the... I think he was a good newspaper journalist who wasn't quite cut out for long-form narrative. Mm. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're generally seen as quite... Um, John's book is incredibly flattering. It's one of those books that I suppose in the in the relatively immediate immediacy of, of John being killed, a lot of those books were like that, weren't they? You had a lot of those, they those were. type of writing. It was Albert Goldman who bucked that trend in 1988. But until then, everything had been positive. Ray had got on very, very well with John Lennon in the 1960s and through the 70s. They had kept in touch and uh, John liked Ray and Ray liked John. And he liked the fact that John, you know, just spoke in headlines. If you're a newspaper man, you know, John Lennon was an ideal interview interviewee. And then, although it seemed like a, a an attribute at the time, he had the authorization of both Cynthia and Yoko. I think that would have ensured in his own mind that he should keep it pretty upbeat and positive. Mm. But the consequence is that they're, they're unbalanced. I mean, they're, they're, it's good to see all that stuff, but it's not balanced in the sense of you don't really quite get the full sense of the man. And as I say, um, without in any way wishing to be rude to Ray or his memory, or to be ungrateful for what he did for me, as books, they're heavy going. Mm. So was it around this time that you started to meet, in the course of your research, people that were around the Beatles, people in Liverpool, people in, in London? Did you start at this point to find your feet a little bit? Um, yes, I I was quite friendly with Brian Roylance at Genesis Publications because I would always be plugging Genesis titles in my Beatles monthly column. And when 1983, so again, my first year as a freelance, um, they were publishing or putting together Derek Taylor's book, 50 Years Adrift. Um, Brian ran some text past me for fact-checking. I ended up having phone conversations with Derek, which immediately went very well. And I was absolutely thrilled to, to be speaking to Derek Taylor on the phone. I met Neil Aspinall in 83 as well, but that was more of a business meeting. But we did meet, so he did know who I was. And I had been into Apple to see Neil. Everyone was still alive then, apart from those who had died really prematurely, like Mal, Brian. People were still alive and still quite young. And I now look at the fact that I knew a lot of these people thinking, why didn't I ask them this, that and the other? You go, but I didn't have the depth of knowledge then to know what kind of questions I should be asking, nor did I have a purpose for asking it. I wasn't writing a biography then. Um, but now, you know, we're almost, we reached the point where almost everyone, not quite everyone, thankfully, but most people in the story are now gone or very, very old. I rue missed opportunities, but, you know, I wasn't doing this then. I wasn't writing a biography then. Who else did I know? I met Pete Best in 85 when his first book came out. I interviewed Pete. And in fact, I recently had cause to reread Sean O'Malley wouldn't run it because it was a bit negative. It was a bit negative, A, about why Pete had been fired, but also about Pete's views of the other Beatles. 
he didn't speak very well of Paul in in my interview with Pete and and Sean O'Mahony thought well I don't want to run it then because this is a fan magazine Sean O'Mahony to come back to your much earlier question was a bit like that it was a bit old-fashioned in the sense of you can't criticize them it's a fan magazine and I ended up writing one or two lightly critical pieces and he did run them but he wasn't happy about it I, I don't feel that criticism is is unjustified mm. uh, I might regret what I wrote now for other reasons, you know, difference of opinion perhaps, but um, I think it's okay to to say the odd negative thing if it's properly contextualized. Yeah. So I began to meet people, but I was more interested in the research. So I'd spend a lot of time on the phone to people who had put on gigs, promoters who might have kept a diary or correspondence with Brian Epstein or something like that. I did a lot of that rather than trying to speak to stars i didn't really have much to say to stars or know how to say it mm. and in that time i befriended roger scott who was the capital radio disc jockey at that time and who was always quite entrepreneurial and he had a contract with westwood one radio network in america to make shows for american radio syndicated american radio and roger got me into paul mccartney's buddy holly week party in 1986 in fact, just before that, Roger had interviewed Paul when Press to Play came out and said, a friend of mine, Mark Lewis, has got this book about the Beatles, uh, the Beatles Live, and, and Paul, you can hear him in the background, goes, Mark, Mark Thingy. A good friend of mine wrote this the Beatles Live book, and he, he just Mark asked, yeah, Mark Lewis, and he just asked to ask you how, what you thought. I think that, to me, is like the best Beatles book I've read, because I, I didn't realise how hard we worked. I knew we'd worked hard, but it, for me, obviously, it's great because it tells me every gig I ever did with the Beatles, which is like a great reference thing because I, I can't remember all of them. But he's, he seems, from what I can see, it seems to be very accurate, and very thorough. So when Roger then got me into the Buddy Holly Week party a few weeks later, Paul went, you're Mark Lewison, great. And from that point on, I knew Paul. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about the Beatles live. Was there a moment when you thought, this is what I'm going to do? Was there a point when you wanted to be a Beatles author? Tell us a little bit about the genesis of the Beatles live. No, I considered myself to be a researcher. Mm. And um, again, it was Philip Norman's initial inquiry or my suggestion to him that the date of Lennon meeting McCartney could be properly found if someone really spent a bit of time on it. Uh, and he said, go away and do it. And I went away and did it. And then I, and then the Johnny Gentle dates as well. That was probably my idea, but I really don't remember. But I found those dates that the Beatles had been to Scotland and where they had been, which, you know, enabled the itinerary to be pieced together. And um, and then I kept going. You know, that was Philip Nunn. He was done. His shout came out. I just kept on going for myself. And I had a day job, so I would be at the, the British libraries newspaper library in collindale every saturday for some years and then from 83 when i left music week i was there a lot for ray and for myself because ray common wanted me to put together a lennon chronology so that was a lot of newspaper work in that i remember thinking i've got all this work what am i going to do and friends said to me well it should be a book and i said well who's going to write it well, well you are I, somehow i couldn't quite see it and i didn't have the faith in myself as a writer I hand wrote that first book. I still have the handwritten version of it. And then from the handwriting, I typed it because I didn't have the ability to type straight from my head at that point. It ended up in front of Tim Rice, 
a lyricist and uh he had a book publishing company at that time called pavilion books which he had formed with michael parkinson and a guy called colin webb and called pavilion books because principally they published books about cricket but tim rice of course with his great love of music and and enthusiasm for knowledge of it um saw the manuscript and said i want to publish this book and so pavilion published my first book May the 19th, 1986, a date etched on my mind. Absolutely. And May, May the 19th, 87, I interviewed Paul for the first time up at MPL. And May the 19th, 88, I interviewed Mary Hopkin. I kept thinking, May the 19th, that's my special date. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. The Beatles Live comes packaged with first radio interview that the Beatles ever gave. Tell us a little bit about how, how that interview, I mean, it's quite unusual in a way to get an uh, interview packaged together with a book. Tell us about how you found that and why it was put into the book. Um, I was fortunate from around 1980 to um, contact Spencer Lee, who I hadn't met then and uh, was not yet. He had written two or three books, I think, but I didn't have them. But I knew him as a presenter on BBC Radio Merseyside. And he had a weekend show, Saturday or Sunday, or maybe even both. And we spoke on the phone a few times and he started to send me cassettes of his radio programs, which not being on Merseyside, I couldn't hear otherwise. It was only local radio. If my memory serves, in one of them, he played a little bit of this interview that had been done by Monty Lister. Monty Lister was kind of young middle-aged man in 1962. He had ended up with a program on Radio Merseyside of his own. And Spencer knew him and evidently he had this interview that he had done with the Beatles in 62 for hospital radio stations on the Wirral. And I got in touch with Monty, probably through Spencer, and met him. Oh, there was a key reason for wanting to meet him. There was a book by Ron Jones and Mike Evans called The Beatles Liverpool. And it mentioned that they had, the Beatles had played four times in the village of Port Sunlight near Birkenhead. And I did what I always did. I went to the British Library and got out the local newspaper, which would have been the Birkenhead News, maybe the Bebbington News, the more local edition of it. No adverts for the Beatles at Hume Hall. I knew they had played there four times. I didn't have a single date. How can I find out? And I got in touch. This is how it was. I got in touch with someone at Port Sunlight who put me onto Monty, who was well known in the area. And um, and I met Monty and he let me see Port Sunlight News, which was a monthly magazine for the employees of the Lever Brothers Soap Factory. And that had the dates for two or three of the four shows that they had done there. And he showed me around Port Sunlight. We went to Hume Hall and we discussed his tape. And either then or soon after, I made him an offer for the tape and its copyright. And he agreed to sell it to me. And with that ownership of it, I was able to include it in my first book as a free flexi-disc record. The publishers, Pavilion Books, were very good. I mean, it, it cut into their profits, but they agreed that they would fund it. I said it had to be pressed at Lintone Records because Lintone had pressed the Beatles' annual fan club Christmas flexi-discs, which I had got in 1967, 8 and 9 as a member of the fan club at that time. And um, and I looked at the label long enough to know that Lintone was the company. So I got in touch with Lintone and I went up to the factory with my tape and um, they pressed it as a record. And I got to look around the factory. In fact, I came away with quite a few free records that day as well. They had boxes of them, boxes and boxes. 
and then it, it got put into the book and it was basically a radio interview that you no one had heard in full unless they happened to be on the wards of Cleaver and Clatterbridge Hospital on the Wirral in October 1962, the 28th of October. And if they had been, they probably wouldn't have remembered it anyway, because there was no particular reason to. So this was a beautiful tape. I mean, it's the first tape of the Beatles being interviewed that we that we know about. It's it's full of character and, and little nuggets of information. And it just seemed to belong with that book. So mm. I put it in. It's got that line, Paul says, which stood out for me when I listened to it for the first time. Just just a throwaway line where he says John is in fact the leader of the group because the question about the leader, little did he know then the the dynamic that was already around then I suppose at that point. Yeah, in fact he volunteers it if you if you listen because well you have listened but um, he volunteers it because the question's already kind of been answered and they've moved on but he brings it back in order to break make that point John is in fact the leader of the group. That was a period when all groups had to have a leader. That was why the question had been asked in the first place, because groups always had a leader uh, and the Beatles didn't appear to have one. So the question was, you know, have you got a leader? Then there's George Harrison. Mm, how do you do? How do you do? Mm. What, what's your job? Uh, lead guitar and sort of singing. Mm -hmm. By playing lead guitar, does that mean you're sort of leader of the group or are you? No, no, just singing. It's say. solo guitar, you see. John is in fact the leader of the group. It was curious that Paul would do that. He and John were equals in, in every respect, other than the fact that in Paul's mind, John had started the group and he was the guy who, you know, he was the leader. And and he was in other ways as well, you know, more subtle ways than that. But uh, they were very much equal in every respect, apart from that one little detail. And Ringo is mentioned as being new to the, the group and yet already sounds so comfortable. Everything's already ready to go, but he's he's so new to that that group. Yeah, the chemistry. I mean, he says, I think I've been with. I think he says nine weeks, which actually, if you calculate it, he's he's out by one. I can't remember whether it's eight or ten. It was. It must be ten by the end of October. But the fact that he was even counting, or in his case, miscounting, but trying to get it right, indicates how new he was. But they're still going back to Hamburg. I mean, it's it's a tape. It's a recording of them while speaking before the Hamburg era finished. Mm. It's really important. And George doesn't say much, but what he says is very funny. You get their characters. It's a very important little tape. And eventually, um, when we were working on the Beatles Anthology 1 compilation, which had some a fair bit of spoken word in it, mm. I gave it to George Martin. I said, consider this. Um, and George was trying to kind of create that first disc was a bit like a radio program with music and speech and music and speech. And he said, oh, we need a bit of this because it's going to bridge the gap between two pieces of music. So they ended up using a bit of it on Anthology One, for which I got paid by Apple more than I had paid to Monty in the first place. So it all was all right. And I let Monty know and he, he was just very pleased about it. Very, very pleased that his name was on this, this, you know, multi-million selling disc. Wonderful. So mm. you mentioned there this encounter at Buddy Holly Week with that bloke, Paul McCartney. The fact that, especially as he's, even at that point, was notoriously so negative about Beatles books. I heard an interview that you gave where you said that they stopped being interested in about 1966. You know, they had never had any interest. And suddenly he singled out you at this party and said, I like your book. I mean, it's an obvious question, but what was that like? It was lovely. It was absolutely lovely, of course. I mean, I, 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 I was... um glowing as you can imagine i was 28 
I've been a Beatles fan all my conscious life. And Paul was still young at this point. He's, you know, he's quite an elderly chap now. But what was Paul in age? He was 44, you know, not even middle age, really. It was a wonderful feeling. And I know why he liked it. And two main reasons he liked it. One was the fact that it didn't have an opinion in it. It was only the detail of essentially a, a diary of his youth, um, where he had been every night, you know, playing on stage, which as a gigging musician, you are sure to forget. You are sure to forget. And the Beatles had never been good record keepers of their own history. And they lost sense of their chronology quite early on. <clears throat> you read interviews with them from even the mid-60s, and they've kind of forgotten the detail of, of when things had happened. How many times did we go to Hamburg? They couldn't quite remember. But the other thing is, it was the it was the contrast of my book with the majority of books about the Beatles at that time, which, as you mentioned earlier, in the immediate aftermath of John Lennon's death, may join out to be a saint, uh, and therefore Paul the Sinner. Uh, I never understand this, and I never will understand it. I shall go to my grave not understanding why human beings have this tendency when promoting something to relegate something else. I, I liken it to a seesaw. If someone goes up in the way that things are written and perceived, someone else goes down. Beatles or Stones? Well, what about Beatles and Stones? That's even better. Yeah. What about John and Paul? Not just John or Paul, but John and Paul. But that had been the way things had gone after John's death. He had been kind of deified. And Paul had taken the brunt end of that and was fed up to the back teeth of it. And here was a book that had none of that in. It just told him where he had been on stage. And he could see for the first time in his career, he'd been able to see the pattern of how things had evolved. When Brian came along, their engagements changed. They weren't playing those halls anymore. They're playing these clubs and so on. Um, and how then they get their first theatre dates and then their first international. And it all fitted into a, like a jigsaw puzzle in on paper that he'd never quite grasped before. And I think that's why he liked it. Mm. I, I was very proud of myself for not including opinions in my books. I still keep my opinion out of things. Absolutely. We'll talk a little bit about the Beatles recording session book, incredibly well-loved and, and well-liked. Am I right in saying that this project was already in existence before you were contacted about it? Yes. Tell us a little bit about what state it was in and then how and why you got that phone call. It hadn't been written, but the information for it in the sessionography, if there is such a word, had been compiled by John Barrett. Uh, John Barrett was a sound engineer at Abbey Road who contracted leukaemia in maybe the early 1980s. Um, he was well liked at the studio and the studio was very well managed by Ken Townsend. They were not going to cut him adrift. They were going to be loyal to John Barrett through his period of um, cancer treatment. But obviously he couldn't work on recording sessions so much because he would have to go off and have chemotherapy. So they needed to find John some work that he could do whenever he was in. And when he was away getting treatment or just being ill, then it didn't matter. And that job, especially in the aftermath of John Lennon's death, was to do the first proper assessment of what Abbey Road had in his fault. There was a tape library log, but that was dates and titles. Many of those tapes have never been played since they've been put back on, put on the shelf in the 1960s. We're not talking master tapes here. We're talking session tapes. We're talking multi-tracks, two-track, four-track and 
eventually eight track tapes of the raw sessions where they had been kept, which was most of them, but not all. And it was John's illness and his exploration of those tapes that led in 1983 to the Beatles at Abbey Road, the control desk the console in number two studio, which is upstairs above the studio, was being replaced. The studio was going to be out of use for two to three months in the summer of 1983. And with John Barrett's research, Ken Townsend, the studio manager, said we could play some of these tapes to people and they could come in and get their first taste of Abbey Road from the inside. And we can play them rare stuff, show them rare film and charge for it to make money. They would never have been allowed to do that in later years. But at this time, what EMI and Abbey Road did, and Abbey Road was an EMI company fully, did not have to be referred to the Beatles for approval. Had approval been necessary, I'd, I'm sure they wouldn't have got it. But they were able to do it because they wanted to do it, and they did do it. And I came in on the end of that in 83 and went into the studio a couple of times on a Saturday and was there. I was there when John Barrett literally got out the While My Guitar Gently Weeps take one, George doing the acoustic version. But we didn't know that until he threaded it on the machine and we heard it in number two studio control room. And um, wow. I'd barely been in Abbey Road before. I'd been in the 70s a couple of times, but not really, not much, not beyond the reception area. So I was, I was in heaven, as you can imagine. So that Abbey Road, thing came and went in 83 and in 86 my live book came out john barrett he died about that time and um emi may possibly have had john or maybe brian southall write the book but it had, hadn't been done all it was was this catalog that john had handwritten and when i did the live book brian southall and mike heatley at emi said well you've made a list of the Beatles live engagements into an interesting read. Um, would you now like to do the same with the, the Beatles recording session details? We've got the catalog, come and write the book. And so I started doing that in the first week of 1987. It came out in September 88. What the dream phone call or conversation that one, I can imagine. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I don't have a recording of it, unfortunately, but uh, I remember it vividly. I mean, it was tremendously exciting. I think I may have been given a tip off that it was coming. Mm. I think I was. But anyway, yeah, to go into Abbey Road whenever I felt like it, to pull tapes off the shelf, to play them, to speak to people who have been involved in the recordings was all utterly brilliant, as you can imagine. Is it fair to say that this was the book that opened the most doors for you with Paul, with Apple, etc.? Was that the one that gave you the set of keys, as it were? Yeah, Paul had, um, not with Apple, Paul had a new manager at that time called Richard Ogden, who was progressing Paul. But Stephen Shrimpton was the last manager Paul had had up through and including Broad Street. And then he left at the end of Broad Street and Paul didn't really have much of a management for two or three years and needed a new one. Took on a guy called Richard Ogden, who was friendly to me. It was the first time I'd ever been able to speak to Paul McCartney's manager. And uh, I said, I'd like to interview Paul for the recording sessions book. And he said, well, write Paul a letter. And I'll make sure he gets to see it. And so I wrote Paul a letter and I included a list of people who, who I'd already interviewed for the book. These were pretty much all backroom boys at EMI, uh, together with some session musicians who played on their tracks. I mean, classical people, violinists and cellists and so on. And I sent the list to Paul and he could see that everyone on there was, you know, someone he liked. 
you know, they're not going to say bad things. You know, Ken Scott isn't going to diss me. Jeff Emmerich isn't going to diss me. Ken Townsend isn't going to. So I said, could I interview you? And he said, yep. So May the 19th, 1987, the first anniversary of the live book, I was in MPL and we got on really great and it went off tangent quite a lot and time ran out. And Paul said, as he often says, you know, we do another one of these if you like, you know, sometime. He doesn't really expect you to to pick him up on it, but I did. And I, I got in touch and said, well, could we do a part two then? Because we didn't get that far with part one. And oh, it took a bit longer to arrange the second one, but he was okay. We got on really well the second time as well. And then he was right at that time pissed off with all these pro-Lenin books. Not that he wasn't pro-Lenin, but he was pissed off with the, the imbalance in these books. Mm. He decided he was going to write his autobiography and that I should be the guy who would help him to get it right. So I had a phone, another of those great phone calls. This was from Sheila Jones at MPL to say, Paul would like to you to get involved in his autobiography and, and we'll pay you. By this point, I've been freelance for four years, nearly five, and I was well away by then. I wasn't looking back anymore. So how far did that project get with you? What did you pitch him? It got almost nowhere at all because this was his idea. I didn't have to pitch anything except mm. that sometime around 91 or something like that, um, Richard Ogden said to me, the Barry Miles book came up around that time as well. And I was like, don't worry, the book we want to do with you is still intact. But he just wants to do this one about those London underground counterculture years, kind of 65 to 68. So... Richard Ogden said, will you put together a document explaining what Paul's book needs to be? If he writes this, if this autobiography, give us an idea of what it might entail from your point of view. And because I don't do anything by half measure, and because he is Paul McCartney, I just basically, in over three or four sides of paper, said to him, your book should be the brand leader forever. People should always say, I hope my book is as good as Paul McCartney's book. Or, you know, if I can get as good as Paul McCartney's book that I've done really well or whatever, you want to set the benchmark for how great a book like this can be. Because often these celebrity autobiographies are tossed off by either ghostwriters transparently in plain sight or all ghostwriters who you don't know about, who aren't credited. Very occasionally they're written by the subject themselves, but they they come and they go every Christmas. The bookstores are full of them. And a year later, there's somebody else's book. You're Paul McCartney. You should write the best book ever. And it's going to take this amount of time and it's going to take this many interviews and it's going to take archival exploration and so on and so on. And I think he just read this thing and thought, I'm not bloody doing all that. And of course, he could have disregarded it and done it his way. But I think I think he just got busy doing other stuff. Mm. He's always got plenty to do. So it just came and it went. Did you have any involvement in the Miles book at all? Did you have any phone calls with Barry about Paul? A few, uh, but he didn't need my help in any way. I think he he did uh, maybe ask me a couple of things. And I remember meeting Miles at a few McCartney events and we would always sit and talk. But I mean, that was very much, first of all, Barry was a writer long before I ever was. And secondly, that was very much his sphere. I knew no real detail about that period of Paul's life because it hadn't really been publicized much at the time. That was part of why Paul was wanting to do the book now to alert people to the fact that he'd been doing this stuff all those years ago and no one really knew it. That was what he wanted to get across. So, um, no, Miles was the right guy and um, we had a couple of conversations, but otherwise, no. 
Did you enjoy that book? Very much. Very much. Yeah. It's a major contribution to our knowledge, that book. I'm not saying it's flawless, um, and very few things are, but it certainly is an extremely useful book. Yeah, uh, around, uh, I think, 93, the Beatles London appears, which, uh, again, is a huge, without being too indulgent, is a huge part of my life because I'm from Brentwood in Essex, which is not far from London. So uh, through the kind of late 90s, pre-Google Maps, I hasten to add, I would dash on to the the train into Liverpool Street with your book uh, under my arm and an A to Z, and I would go and uh, take pictures, much as you had done. Uh, so the Beatles London is a, a terrific resource, which you wrote with uh, Adam Smith and Piet Schroeders. Tell us a little bit about how how that book kind of came about. That looks to be quite a long project in the making. Yeah, actually, it was, you don't need to know this, but for the record, it was started by Sean O'Mahony. He had the idea of a book about the Beatles London in about 1985-ish, something like that, and gave me an advance of a £1,000, which was okay. You can't live that long off it, but I had other income anyway, so I was happy to take it. And I started to do the research. It was a bit unwieldy because I didn't have a... It wasn't just the Beatles. So I had all the Paul Solo stuff in the 70s and 80s. You know, Paul played here in 1979 and all that kind of stuff. And Handmade Films, Office and all of that was in it. And I did deliver a basic manuscript. And funny thing is, I never even heard from him again. He, he never even acknowledged having it, but he paid me the money and it never came out. And eventually, years later, when I was planning it as a as a book with another publisher i just said to him it's okay if i do that with another publisher yeah don't worry so by then i had become friends with this uh wonderful dutchman by the name of pete schroeders and pete is a great educator in my life to the content of beatles photographs i had a good eye for beatles photographs in terms of when they might have been taken and who are the people in them apart from the beatles but when I first met Pete, he, we went through a lot of Dezo Hoffman pictures and he showed me what other detail a photograph might contain that will illuminate you if you research it from that angle. There might be someone might be reading a newspaper. Well, what date is that newspaper? Go, go to the library and find the date of that paper and you've probably got the date of the photograph. Oh, this one is back to front. This one is the same. There are two photographers. They've got the same shot, but from different angles. And he would put the two together so you could see the two. He became he very rapidly became a friend from 1986. We began to work on the Beatles London book together from around that time. And then uh, Adam Smith fell into my orbit in 88 when the recording sessions book came out and wrote to me saying, I've been doing some research into the, into the Beatles London. I don't know why, but I just felt consumed by the subject enough to do it. You have it. You do something with it. And I said, well, let's meet. And we met and I said, well, look, you don't know this, but I've been doing it as well. And I'm in league with this Dutchman called Pete. Um, why don't the three of us join forces? And so we did. And that eventually became the first edition that came out in 1994. And it's a very useful book because not only does it work as a, as a book about London, about the topography of London and about the the streets and the proximity of clubs to studios and so on. But it enabled, enabled me to get a lot of little factual nuggets in that I'd been, that I'd found during my research that didn't belong anywhere else. So it's actually a very informative Beatle book, but it's the information is chopped up into addresses, but what happened in this building is actually a little detail and uh, you can't really use those things anywhere else. 
The second edition was 2008, and we have been working towards a third edition for many, many, many years. We constantly keep up to date with London changes, buildings being demolished, um, new information. I mean, since I started researching my history trilogy, um, I found scores more London locations than I ever knew about, hundreds even. So we haven't done a third edition yet. It's in our mind. And um, unfortunately, since the second one, Adam Smith has died. So now it's just Pete and me. And we were going to be doing it with Andre Barreau, co-founder and co-manager of the Bootleg Beatles. Uh, and he's now died. So um, we haven't done it yet. We're working towards it slowly. It's incredible sense of place in that book. One of the joys of it is, and hopefully listeners will relate to this, the very first time I walked down Swain's Lane in Highgate and there was a suburban, nondescript, it would appear, house that on the mad day out, the four Beatles stood in front of. Um, and it was a random, it was a, pi a picture that I'd had in like a mojo from the mid 90s. About four or five years, I'd looked at this picture and then suddenly there I was outside this house. And it sounds maybe a bit odd to some people, but it, it kind of meant so much that I, I was in that space that they were in. Did yes. you get a sense of that when you were writing the book? Always, always. You can't beat the so Andre coined a great word, which is a locationist. We are locationists. We like to go to places where things happened, not in any kind of morbid way and not because we are, you know, so struck on these great stars that we need to be where they stood. It's more about gaining an understanding of something, an extra dimension of knowledge or feel that comes from being in the same spot. That London book is a good example of in the pre-internet age, how things had to be done the hard way. I mean, it took us weeks to find Swain's Lane, if not months. There were none of the Mad Day Out locations were really known about. Um, the Dome in Paul's Back Garden, the Mercury Theatre in Notting Hill, Wapping, I suppose, was probably known about. But when they're on that plinth, pulling at one another or pretending to fight, no one knew where that was. And we looked at those pictures for years and followed every possible little lead. We literally had magnifying glasses out trying to find where things were. And eventually Pete found that one, I think, if I'm right in saying, from a top deck of a bus in London and phoned me very excitedly from a phone box. What I'm trying to say is that what now is easily findable on the internet, you just put something into a search engine and you found it in seconds and photographs of it and accounts of it and so on. There was a time when that information was not known. And I'm very proud to have been the person who has found much of that. And I have the joy that no one else has, although Pete and Adam can share this from the London perspective, um, and other things as well, of remembering the joy of the finding or the thrill of the, thrill of the chase. You know, how, how something was found ends up being almost as interesting as finding it. But now you can just click and you found it. And that's fine, but we had that joy of finding it. And there was a time when it wasn't known and that is now lost. Mm -hmm. That's okay. I mean, that's what putting knowledge out into the public domain is all about. You no longer own it. It belongs to the world once you've published it. But um, the joy of finding it is something that we still talk about, you know, those little discoveries. I mean, the, the Euston Road, the, where the Twist and Shout EP cover was taken, the Beatles are jumping in the air over rubble. And the implicate, well, there was no implication, but the implication, I think, kind of implicit in the reader or in the, the, the viewer of that picture was that it was Liverpool. 
Liverpool is full of bomb sites. They're from Liverpool. They're jumping in the air. It's 1963. It's probably Liverpool. And um, I can't remember exactly what alerted us to the fact that it was London. But where in London? Where is that place? Great amounts of time were spent on where that might be. And eventually, Pete Schroeder's found that they that another picture taken on the same day, had been taken on the same day, where they're standing in front of bollards, four Beatles, four bollards, slightly angled. And he noticed from the shape of the lamppost in the background, there was a very particular shape. And we went around London looking for that lamppost. And he found it in North Gower Street, just off the Euston Road. And that meant that the they're standing on the corner of the top of Gower Street, where it meets the Euston Road. And that meant the building in the background we could see was a demolition site. And we thought that must be where, because Pete told me very early on, photographers very seldom go very far. Mm. Once you've got a location, the next one is probably just around the corner. And the, the next one is probably just around the corner from that. They're not going to go far. So I could see the name in the background with T.E. Scudder demolition. And I tracked Mr. Scudder down in the hope that he would have his records of where he had performed demolitions when what had been demolished and so on. And we put it in our book. We felt that we had got it right. And then Andre came along and said, it's actually about 50 yards to the left of that. And he explained why he thought it. And and that led to a really interesting article that some of your listeners may have seen in a magazine called Furore. Came out about three years ago, I suppose, three, four years ago. Uh, it's a Pete Schroeder's own journal published occasionally and this was an all Beatles issue Andre did the complete explanation of how we found out precisely where it was taken where they jumped it was called I gave a copy of that to Paul McCartney who sent me a nice email in return saying he'd enjoyed looking through it yeah that was a bit yeah, about three or four years ago the foreword for the Beatles London was written by Derek Taylor well I think he calls it this got the best Beatles book Ever. Yeah. 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 Why do you think he liked that so much? Looking at it now, what does he say? For me, this is far and away the most interesting Beatles book ever assembled. Why? Uh, I mean, the, the thing about the Beatles London, it comes at the Beatles from an unusual angle. It's their story, but it's told through streets, clubs, buildings, recording studios, you know, wherever their photos were taken, wherever they'd worked, wherever they'd socialized. And it's not in chronological order, it's in geographical a geographical order of some kind so you don't quite know what's going to be on the next page it really is a very interesting book and the next edition if we ever get it will be even more interesting because it's got so much more in it again um pete's very good at then and now photographs that's that's a joy that uh, he's introduced me to as well when you go to a place take another picture from the same angle the first research trip he and i ever made and this was his idea we wanted to go down to western supermare where the Beatles had been on the go-kart track in the summer of 1963, and they had had the photo session in the Victorian bathing costumes, and they had been photographed doing a commercial, ultimately unused, for Typhoo Tea on the terrace of their hotel. And Pete had done a fair bit of research into this, a lot, in fact, worked out what hotel it was and booked us into a, a twin room. I drove down there in um, late 1986, September, October with Pete. And we did we did it all. We we went out onto the terrace. It's now demolished, but we jumped in the air where they had jumped in the air. He took pictures of me. I took pictures of him. We went to the beach with the bathing costumes. And Pete had done a brilliant thing. 
There was a photograph, I think it might have been George that took it or maybe Paul with Deso Hoffman's camera in 1963 in a mirror. Pete reversed the picture, established precisely what make and model of camera Deso Hoffman had, which was a Raleigh cord, gone and bought the very same camera. Wow. Then we went to the beach where the bathing costumes pictures were taken. And I, while I stood in particular places, Pete looked down into the viewfinder. It was one of those where you looked down in, into the camera and matched the background, the shape of the hill behind me until we got where they had been. I mean, we didn't need to do that. It didn't really add anything to anything. But once you're there, you might as well get it right. And we are all about getting things right. Um, and then we found the go-kart track as well. And in 1963, the, uh, the Beatles picture, there's a man in the background, hot summer's day, Englishman with army shorts and no top on. And when we went there in 1986, there was this guy standing there and he said, oh, what are you two doing? And we showed him. We said, well, in 1963, the Beatles came here and had their pictures taken. Here are the pictures. And he went, yeah, and that's me. <laughs> he had a shirt on by this time, which is why I didn't recognize him. That was the start of my journey with Pete and all these things they all they all filter into a, a kind of a body of knowledge which um in addition to anything else that people out there might have you know might appreciate I've enjoyed it and I think one of the key things about my work and why I keep going and keep going is I've now been doing this it's since I started researching the Beatles that's 45 years ago now is that I enjoy it mm. I absolutely love it mm, absolutely just a quick few questions before we come to a, an end, Mark, you mentioned Derek Taylor did that foreword for yeah. The Beatles yes, London. Sorry. You're in a quite a, a unique position where, and you'll be the judge of how close or not you are with these people, but you got to know Derek Taylor, Neil Aspinall, George Martin, all these people that were really, really close to The Beatles. Um, I'm wondering, did you, did you get a sense of what they had in common, the people that were that close to the Beatles. The Beatles kept them around. These people, they they really were part of that, that inner circle. Do you get a sense of why that was? Uh, intelligence, perceptiveness, a fascination for the Beatles in as much as they were there to serve them. They were there to do a job, in George Martin's case, who was on a salary with EMI until 65. Neil, a different... Well, Neil was paid by the Beatles from 1961 to 2008 uh, and Derek on and off, uh, depending on whether he was working for them or not. But they all served them at all times, even if they weren't working for them, because they believed in the Beatles. They understood where the Beatles had come from. I don't just mean in terms of coming from Liverpool. I mean, as human beings, the way they thought, they understood the way they thought. They were all aware of the downside of working for them, how it can monopolize your life, how you can get used, how they would come to treat you as employees, which is not the same as being a friend, you know, how you'll be expected to drop everything if they need something. But there was love, absolute love um, from them to the Beatles and love or great respect or mutual trust at the very least with from the Beatles back to them. Mm. So, and they all had their little favorite not little favorites people with whom i mean the beatles were a group of four people but that meant you don't like four people identically if you've got four friends or let's say three other friends you've got an internal dynamism and if someone comes and joins you someone you know an outsider he might warm to you more than the other three or he might warm to one of the others and not to you he might like you but he 
got a particular kinship with one or the others. And they all had that, um, but they all were in equally in as much as serving them. I had relationships with all of them. I wouldn't overstretch it to say that I was great friends with them because I wasn't. I, I wouldn't phone them up to suggest going out to the cinema or for a drink. But if I was with them, we might go for lunch and that would be, and it would be easy. So it was friendly, if not friends, depends how you define it. And I had good times with all of them, but I was also aware that I was giving something to them in terms of a service. They weren't, didn't just have me around because they liked me. I was there to do a job, but the job was very done in a very friendly manner and a cooperative manner, which I always enjoyed. Mm. The dynamism is interesting because how an individual would get on with a, di a different beetle differently. I was reading Michael Palin's diaries yeah, uh, yeah. and the, the 90s diaries. And the, there's, a little, there's an entry where in the summer of 94, Michael Palin and his, his wife go down to see Paul and Linda. And they have a summer afternoon and they, you know, have a nice wander around the gardens, et cetera, et cetera. And then that Christmas, Palin goes to Friar Park to see George, who, of course, as we know, he was much closer to, and their friendship was pretty strong. And Palin writes that, I think he says something like, the very first thing George said to him was, I hear you've been seeing the bass player. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I just thought it's interesting how you must have witnessed a little bit of how the people that knew them reacted differently to obviously it was just the three of them in, in your time, but that must be yeah. quite an interesting thing. Very much, yes. And I was aware of those things. And I, I have not as many notes as I should have taken at the time, but I do have some of that kind of that kind of thing. I mean, I was well involved in the anthology project, and at that time, although Yoko, Paul, George and Ringo were contributing to it. So it was a combined project where they all gave of something and there appeared to be unanimity of purpose. Um, they were not always that great at collaborating with one another. And that was kind of the apex of George's period of winding Paul up. So, you know, calling him the bass player is you can hear George saying it, can't you? You can just hear him saying that. There are stories that, uh, from that anthology period that reveal the, quite openly the differences between them. And I also had it from Paul because eventually George got on my case. So he was winding me up and Paul. And that was something that gave me and me and Paul something in common, which, which we didn't have until we had other things in common, but not that thing. Now suddenly we had that thing in common as well. Him obviously on a far more deeper, meaningful level than me, but nonetheless, it was like, you know, and he told me in no uncertain terms that George, George's opinion should be ignored. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I, I loved all of that. You know, I love the fact that one of them is talking to me about another one. You kind of really feel like you're in then. It's surface, really, but nonetheless, it was nice. Thanks so much for your time. It's been, as usual, incredibly illuminating. Okay, thank you, Joe.